reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. But before we read it, I'd like to make a couple of comments, but also ask you to grab a Bible or your device. We're going to look at another passage as well and combine it with this reading, and I'll tell you where to go in a moment. Because our text for today brings us into the third week of Jesus comparing the kingdom of God to a vineyard. Now, I've mentioned this before. As we've made our way through Matthew over the course of this ordinary season, but there is a deep connection between Matthew's gospel and the book of Isaiah. We've talked about this some this morning in Sunday school, particularly as it relates to Isaiah's stressing of a new exodus. Matthew picks up on this theme. So it's important to note here that Jesus is not pulling this vineyard imagery out of a vacuum. Rather, what he's doing is he's making a very explicit connection to the exact same imagery that Isaiah makes, found in Isaiah chapter 5. So if you would, make your way to Isaiah 5. In this chapter, and I'm going to only read the first seven verses and then read our text for this morning, and then we will pray. But in this chapter, God describes his people as a vineyard. And it's a vineyard that has been neglected. It has been left to produce rotten fruit or wild grapes or thorns, depending on which translation you may have in front of you. It's a vineyard where thorns have grown up among them. And now the only thing left for this vineyard is to be uprooted and grazed over by the wild animals. And so we read in Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. The Lord says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. And he built a watchtower in the midst of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, what did it yield but wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasing planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, and for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So hear then another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and then went into another country. 
And when the season for fruit drew near, he said to his servant, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come and let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would, please join me in prayer. Lord God, we give you praise and we give you thanks for this day. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of our beds and into the gathered worship of your bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord, we thank you for the worship that we have experienced so far this morning, Lord, through singing and through confession, Lord, through praying for one another, through hearing your word read. And so, Lord, now as we continue to hear your word taught and proclaimed, Lord, as we come to the table and make thanks for Christ, Lord, we pray, God, that you would be honored by our worship and allow it to be in spirit and in truth. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So allow me to say from from the outset that we should note very specifically that this parable is directed completely towards the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, etc., the elders of the people. Basically, it's directed toward these representatives of the Sanhedrin that we saw last week. And it is also built upon the parable of the two sons that we looked at last week together. And so while this audience may have heard the lesson, they haven't listened to it because they haven't believed it. They haven't changed their minds, as Jesus stressed to them last week. They haven't changed their minds about who he is. And instead, they become offended and they reject him. And so instead of believing and obeying his word and his commands, they want to have him arrested. And so as we turn our attention to the parable itself, let's take note of the similarities between this parable that Jesus tells and Isaiah 5 that we just read. Again, none of this is an accident, right? So similar to Isaiah, this master of a house, he comes and he plants a vineyard. He puts a fence around the vineyard, and then he builds a watchtower in the midst of it. So these religious leaders that are hearing this parable should have, and that should be stressed, right, should have began to pick up on the imagery that Jesus is using. But notice that this parable is not simply a story about the way things have been or the way things are, as is the case with most of Jesus' parables. 
More so, this parable is also a prophecy about the way things are about to be. So first, we see the master, he, he waits an appropriate amount of time for the vineyard to be fruitful before he sends his servants to collect the fruit that he rightly assumes should be ready for harvest. Jesus even says here he waits for the season of fruit to draw near. Now, according to Leviticus 19, it takes at least five years before a fruit crop can be harvestable or at least considered edible. The first three years, the fruit is considered to be forbidden, according to the law. In the fourth year, all of the fruit's harvest is meant to be taken as an offering for Yahweh. But it's only starting in the fifth year that the farmer and whomever he sells this fruit to can actually begin to eat it. And so this part of the parable, this, this story, this history here, is meant to be a summation of the history of Israel for these leaders. Jesus reminds them that God established them as a nation. He supplied them with everything that was essential for them to be fruitful and viable. He called out his people, and, be, and, they, and they belonged to him. And so as the season for fruit begins to draw near, he sends his servants, he sends the prophets to collect the fruit of their righteousness. But Jesus reminds them, these servants were abused, and many were violently killed. So God sends other servants. Now quite possibly, this could be a distinction between the pre-exilic prophets and the post-exilic prophets. But the point is the same. All the way up until John the Baptist, there has been consistent disobedience and a rejection of God and a disbelief in his message by those whom God had appointed to care for his vineyard, for his people. And then Jesus, as he continues, he moves that story from historical review of their history to prophetic foretelling. And so he describes then this master of the vineyard finally deciding after all of these servants, their, their abuse, their persecution, their murders, you know what, I'm going to send my son. Because... They're going to reject my slaves. They'll reject my servants. But, but they, will, they will respect my son because he is my son. He comes with my full authority and my full presence. But the tenants continue to prove themselves wicked and disobedient. So they take the son. They throw him out of the vineyard. And then they kill him. Jesus chooses his words very carefully here. This ordering is intentional. Because with each clause, he displays the elements of his own rejection at the hands of the religious leaders. So first, notice the words that the tenants speak here in verse 36, excuse me, 38. They say, this is the heir. Come and let us kill him and have his inheritance. There is a huge irony here. Because if they had simply embraced the son, they would have had the inheritance that they sought. In Mark's telling of the gospel, of this, of this story, this, this story is, it exists in both Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Mark's, Mark mentions that the master sends the servants to collect some of the fruit, not all of it. Reminding us that it has always been God's intention to share of himself with those who belong to him, with those who embrace him and obey him. But second, by throwing the son out of the vineyard, these wicked tenants assert their assumed authority over the vineyard. 
Here, Jesus, what he is doing is he's circling back to the initial interaction that we saw last week earlier in chapter 21 of Matthew. When these priests and these elders of the people, they come to Jesus after he's overthrown the money changers in the temple and driven them out of the temple. They come and they ask him, who gives you this authority and where does it come from? They assume their authority over the vineyard of God above the authority of the Son. These wicked tenants are meant to illustrate that. But then third and finally, after throwing the Son out of the vineyard, they kill him. Again, the ordering of these events is intentional on the part of Jesus. While the Gospel writers do not add this particular commentary statement here, I think we can apply it here to say that in this way, Jesus foretells where he would die. He would be crucified outside of the camp. In John chapter 19, John writes this. He says, So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was outside the camp. In the book of Hebrews, the author writes this in chapter 13. Jesus suffered outside of the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So therefore, let us go to him outside of the camp to bear the reproach that he endured. They took the son, they threw him outside of the vineyard, and then they killed him. And it's here where Jesus ends the parable, but he doesn't end the lesson. And so again, like any good rabbi, he asks them questions. And he does so in such a way to allow them to draw the right conclusion for themselves. And so he, he does this. He says, so okay then, when, when, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what is he going to do to these tenants that he leased his vineyard to? And they respond, he is going to put those wretches to a miserable death and let the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. This part always kind of makes me laugh a little, right? Just a little bit. Like It's, it's kind of a, a twisted, dark humor laugh. Because just like Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 6, they have heard, but they have not understood. They've seen, but they have not perceived. We saw this again this morning in Sunday school in Isaiah 42, this exact same phrase. And so while they give Jesus the right answer, they are so caught up in the story that they condemn themselves with their answer. And they do so even though this is the exact same lesson about belief and obedience from the parable of the two sons. And they miss the obvious fact that he is talking directly to them until he replies to them in the next couple of verses. And so they give him this response and they condemn themselves. And then he says, have you not read? So even though they draw the correct conclusion from this parable, they fail to perceive how they fit within the story. And so by condemning themselves through their response, Jesus progresses and he asks the same question that he has asked them countless times in his, ministries, in his ministry. Have you not read the scriptures? You guys are the teachers of the law and the scripture. Have you not read it? This lesson that Jesus is trying to convey from this parable is that they have been given more than enough warning by God's servants. And they have been given more than enough proof of Jesus' authority for the vineyard of God to be fruitful. But they have failed in their charge to keep the vineyard healthy and prosperous and fruitful. And so in this response, he repeats this very familiar passage from Psalm 118. He says, have you not read in the scriptures, you should have, that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And it's at this point that his meaning becomes very clear to them. 
There is no veiled intent in his meaning. He's the cornerstone that is being rejected by them. He is the son of the vineyard master. They are the ones seeking an inheritance who result to murdering the son in order to try and obtain it. They were meant to be the builders, but they have rejected the son and they have failed in their duties. And as a result of this, Jesus tells them, he says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. The vineyard of God will instead be leased to tenants from the nations who will work it and keep it and see to its fruitfulness to the end of the age. It will be given to a people producing its fruits, is how it's worded in our Bibles. Matthew Henry writes here, and he says that this particular passage, this verse right here, speaks to the same doom with that of the dismantling of the vineyard in Isaiah 5. The religious leaders were not only unfruitful in their use of their privileges in the kingdom of God, but they were opposed to Christ. And it was not long after this that the kingdom was taken away from them completely. But it's in verse 44 that really caught my attention this week. And it's here that I think we find where we fit within this story. Now we know the outcome of what occurs. Looking around the room, most of us have read our Bibles, I would assume. We know the story. We know the story of redemption. We know that Christ is fully rejected. We know that he is crucified. We know that he died. We know that he was buried. That he descended to the dead. On the third day, he rises again. He ascends bodily into heaven. And he is seated bodily at the right hand of the Father. And then the Spirit is poured out on the church. And the inheritance of Christ is made available to all who believe in his death and his resurrection. And those who obey his commands. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Christ. The keys of the kingdom have been taken away from those who have rejected the Lord Jesus and now have been given to all who have embraced him, including you and me. But when we read a parable like this and we read a lesson like this and we consider the historical context of it, we, we sometimes can struggle to figure out where we are supposed to fit within this story. Right? We try to figure out how... Does this affect my walk with Christ? How does this affect my relationship with the Lord? What am I supposed to do with this? What's the lesson that God has for me or for us in this passage? I think verse 44 is helpful with this. And it's tied to how Jesus quotes Psalm 118 in verse 42. Again, he says this, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when the stone falls on anyone, it will crush him. This use of this psalm is a common thread in the New Testament when proclaiming Christ. Peter famously uses this message in Acts chapter 4 when he is before the very same Sanhedrin that are accusing Jesus and questioning his authority. He says this in Acts chapter 4, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers, and people and el- rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
In the Greek, this word for cornerstone means the head. But it, but it kind of serves a little bit as a riddle, right? If you're just trying to read it and figure out exactly what's, what's being said. But the answer to that riddle is, is quite plain in either direction you take the interpretation. Especially when you look at verse 44, because cornerstone can mean either cornerstone, right? Like as a foundation stone of a building, or a capstone, which joins the ascending halves of an arch in the center. He becomes the head. This is why this word is used. So we usually speak of it as a cornerstone for a foundation, and rightly so. But notice how both work together in this verse. As a capstone, the capstone could come loose and fall on people and crush them and kill them, as it does to all who reject Christ. But as a foundation cornerstone, the cornerstone upon which the church is built, people can trip upon that stone and fall upon it and be broken upon it. Jerome, church father in the 4th century, he writes this. He says, whoever sins but yet believes on Christ falls upon this stone and is broken. But he is not crushed. Rather, he is preserved for salvation through perseverance. But then he says this, but upon whomever the stone falls, that is, whoever utterly denies Christ, this stone shall crush him so that not a bone of him shall be left. In Isaiah chapter 8, God warns of judgment against the nation for turning away from him. And the context is the exact same here in this parable. Also in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream of, a, of an enormous statue that is crushed and shattered by a stone. And with this same imagery, Jesus declares to the religious leaders something both very profound and absolutely terrifying for them. They are destined to share in the same judgment as Babylon because they have rejected and will kill God's Messiah. And in doing so, he will crush them into a powder and there will be nothing of them left. Another church father proclaims here and he says, it is one thing to be broken, but it is something else entirely to be crushed. Sizable pieces of whatever is broken remains, but whatever gets crushed is reduced to dust and it is utterly destroyed. So here's my point. And here's how we fit within the story. Here's what God has for all of us who claim Jesus. As we embrace Christ, as we believe in his word and as we are obedient to it, we are to fall upon Christ as our cornerstone and have our sins broken upon him because he was broken for us. Paul tells the Corinthians in his second letter to them in chapter 4, he says, we have this measure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to the death to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made manifest in our mortal flesh. There's a really interesting Japanese art form that I'm going to mispronounce the name of, but you can Google it. It's called kintsugi. 
It's one word. K-I-N-T-S-U-G-I. Kintsugi, I believe, is how it's pronounced, but I don't know because I'm from Mississippi and we can't pronounce those words. But uh, we try and our southern accent just comes through. But it's, it's, an art, it's an art form called kintsugi. And it's a process of taking a broken piece of pottery and mending those pieces back together by using gold. And there's a philosophy behind this process where the potter, or the one making the, the repairs, sees those, those shattered pieces, those breaked, broken pieces, and the repair as part of the story of that, of that object. And so the cracks and the mending together of it are not something that should be disguised. It shouldn't be hidden. Because the, the brokenness of it and its mending back together should be displayed because it speaks to the reshaping of it into something that it was created to be. And so taking that and applying it to Matthew 21 here, our breakage points, the believer who falls upon the cornerstone that is Christ and is broken, is mended back together in Christ Jesus through the process of salvation and sanctification. And we are mended back together into a vessel for honorable use in the kingdom of heaven. And these breakage points within us that have been mended by God through Christ proclaim God's goodness to the world. And they also proclaim the glory of Christ. And they proclaim the power of the gospel of Christ. And then afterwards, in glorification, all of us who are in Christ, our brokenness is not invisible, but it's still part of our story in Christ. Because we become completely like Jesus, who still bears the marks of his atoning glory on the cross. And we become completely like him. And as John tells us in John, 1 John 3, we see him as he is. So as we come to the table, and we prepare to make great thanks for what Christ has done for us, fall upon Christ as your cornerstone, and be broken but also let us be mended and made new through the work of Christ by his life, by his death, and by his resurrection and by the power of God working in us and through us through his Holy Spirit to proclaim the goodness of the gospel for the fruitfulness of his kingdom.